Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Good morning again. It's, um, it's a joy to be here. <clears throat> and thank you for dealing with our technical difficulties. I think we're getting through it. We're just, we still have the words mostly, and that's, that's pretty decent. Yet we can still sing. Um, and uh, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from around these parts. I uh, just recently moved from the United States almost three months ago. And uh, I think the saying is true that we are two countries divided by a common language. And, but although I think saying all that, I do believe there is at least one saying that I know that goes back and forth, and that's the apple of my eye. You guys know that, that saying? Have you heard that saying before? The apple of my eye. Um, what that means uh, is that there's somebody that you care about so much, so deeply, they are the most important to you. And it's somebody that you care deeply for. They're the apple of your eye. Someone who is so close to you that you can see your own reflection in their pupil. That's where the apple little part comes from. Now with, um, with the Shapies, they want Abigail to know that she is the apple of their eye. Just like every parent wants their kids to know they're the apple of their eye. They're, every parent wants their child to be loved, to, be, to know that love, to know that um, they're cared deeply about. And, uh, and, and even Abigail's name, the father's joy, that reflects the, the, the want that we all want with our children. We all want our children to know how joyful we are about them and how much we care for them, how much we love them. And this parental relationship is probably the most important human connection that we will ever have. It's part of our identity. It informs who we are. And if we don't feel that kind of love, if we don't feel that kind of delight, those unmet needs kind of come out sideways. And we kind of end up being either one of two things, often a mix of these two things. We can be the good child, or we do a bunch of good things, do all the right things, and we show everybody how worthy we are to be loved, and we do those good things for love. Or we can be the bad child and say, you know, forget all that. I'm just going to find love in my own terms. The good child and the bad child. And we have both of those parts in us. Now, if our earthly parents are this important and inform who we are this much, what about our heavenly parent? I mean, do many of you feel like you are the apple of God the Father's eye? Are you the Father's joy? Many of us think that, I mean, if he's even there, if he even cares... God is maybe at best neutral towards me. He's not super excited about me. He's not thrilled about me. And if we don't feel we are the apple of God the Father's eye, we work it out in the same way we would with our earthly parents. We're the good child and the bad child. We have both of those parts in us. The good child in us wants to perform for love, wants to do something to earn our worth. God may not be impressed with how I am now, but if I do this, this, and this, then maybe he will be eventually. I can show up to church. I can be part of life groups and community groups. I can uh, be involved in helpful social work. I say all the right things at all the right times. I, and this is, the sad thing about this, this is really not a form of love. This is a form of manipulation, saying because I do these things, God, you must love me. So we have that in us, and we also have in us the bad child. The bad child wants to forget all that business and just say, it is impossible to earn that kind of love, so I'm going to find it on my own terms. I will find love on my own terms, and I'll do what I want when I want. The bad child parts of us don't really care how often we party on the weekends. We don't really care how many partners we sleep with, and we surely would not be very interested in coming to church. But all of that points to a yearning for the love of God. 
Deeper than our earthly parents, our understanding of our acceptance with God, our heavenly parent, informs who we are. If our earthly parents matter, surely our heavenly parent matters more. And because we don't truly believe that God really delights in us, that he's really thrilled about knowing us, we are uncomfortable in our identity and acceptance, and we shop that delight around to other areas, either by trying harder through what we do or by looking elsewhere. And what we're going to see in, in a section of the story that, we, that Rich read earlier, we're going to see that it's only through Jesus that we can be freed from those kind of childish ways, from those empty yearnings, and live in the delight of the Father. And we're going to be focusing, if you have your Bible with you, um, I believe someone said it was page 967, it is in Matthew 3, we're going to be focusing on uh, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. So maybe have that out in front of you as we go through it together. And so here's the basic story. We have Jesus, who is God himself. He seeks out one of us, a human being, like one of us here, John, in this story, to be baptized. Now, John isn't very comfortable with this, which you can imagine if Jesus came to you and said, you must baptize me, you might be like, uh, that's weird, because you're the son of God. Um, he's not uncomfortable, but eventually he gives in because Jesus told him to. But then uh, when Jesus comes up out of the water, we have this, this wonderful public uh, beautiful, massive scene that happens. The heavens are ripped open. The Holy Spirit takes the form of something like a dove and comes down to rest upon Jesus. And God the Father announces to everyone there in a booming voice, this is my son, the delight of my life. That's my boy. People saw with their eyes and heard with their ears this amazing, mind-blowing manifestation of God himself. And what we're going to see in the story, it is through Jesus we can be freed from our childish ways. But how, how, is, how is that true? Where does this come up in the story? How does this story in the Bible teach us this? Well, this story is all about the delight of the Father. And what we see is because the Father loves the Son and the Son identifies with us, the Father delights in us. And that's the, the sentence we're going to be working through. Because the Father loves the Son and the Son identifies with us, the Father delights in us. So that, let's take that first bit off there, because the Father loves his Son. <clears throat> so this, what we have in this story, if, if you look at Matthew as a whole, this story happens before Jesus starts his ministry, before he does anything, before he performs any miracles, preaches any sermons, before he is flogged, before he carries his own instrument of death to, his, to, to the hill of Golgotha. This is happening. So, and what is happening here is God is saying he's pleased with Jesus before he actually really does anything. And it says here that the Father is well-pleased. Being well-pleased means to take pleasure in, to delight in. It's worthy of, of approval. And that's where we get the saying, the apple of my eye. God is saying, that's my boy. So the Father delights in the Son. The way that um, the NIV translates it, it says, this is my Son, in the very last verse here, this is my Son whom I love. Some older translations use the word Beloved. Beloved is not a word that we use normally in day-to-day -day language, unless you're casually into iambic pentameter or Shakespearean English, which I'm not, uh, as you can tell. But uh, and it's kind of this, this whom I love or this beloved, it's, it's something we could easily gloss over, but I want us to maybe take a look at this. What does this, where, what does this mean? What these words are trying to get across is the idea that Jesus is in a very special relationship with the Father. It's the father and the son. This is, for the son, this is someone who the father dearly loves. He's, he's prized. He's valued. And if you're married, your spouse is beloved to you. And that 
relationship might begin to scrape the surface of the father and the son here. Now, there is no way for me, even as an American, there is no way for me to overstate the love that's going on here. No exaggeration exists. I'm trying to find it. It's ridiculously, awesomely awesome. I don't know. Hyperbole does not exist for this relationship. God could not have put it in stronger words. And I'm not sure we as finite beings can ever really truly understand these kind of infinite depths of love. But if we look a little closer, we see this is not just a father-son situation, but the whole trinity is involved here. We have the son is baptized, the father speaks, and the spirit rests. The spirit uh, descends like a dove and alights on Jesus. It rests on him. A spiritual reality broke into the physical realm here. People here saw this with their eyes. They heard this with their ears. This is this kind of mind-blowing account is is happening in real time. And from this eyewitness account, we get the reality that God exists in this this trinity, and there is a high love going on between these people. So we talked about the Father being pleased and the Spirit here alights or rests on Jesus. And this resting is something that is actually kind of significant, maybe more significant than at first glance. The descent of the Spirit of God is a clear reference to Isaiah. And John or Matthew even talks about Isaiah early in, in chapter 3. And we as a church are going to go through Isaiah in a few weeks. Um, but not to steal any of that, ser- that series thunder, I do want to look at a few verses here in Isaiah. Hopefully they'll be projected behind me. Um, Isaiah 42.1 says this, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. The spirit of God descending is a well-known prophecy of the Messiah. It says that God will place his spirit upon his chosen servant. All right, also this in Isaiah 11:2, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, him being the Messiah, the one who's going to free us from everything. Now, this is not to say that Jesus up until now has been without the spirit, because Matthew talks about how Jesus was born through the spirit. But now the spirit comes to rest on Jesus, comes to bring to bear in a different and a new light. What's happening here is Jesus is now visibly equipped and commissioned to undertake his messianic mission. This is like an anointing of a king in the Old Testament. It's a proclamation for everyone to see. And those who are at the Jordan are presented with God, the Holy Spirit, anointing Jesus as king. And we, reading this story, get to be witnesses of this same event. So here, we find that God is not holding back. He's telling everyone who will hear about the Son. And maybe to get an idea of how much the Father loves the Son, because this is a scale I don't think any of us can really, really completely understand. Here's maybe, here's maybe the beginning of a start. And I am not a scientist, so if I get some of these numbers right, you can correct me, just kind of yell it out, and we'll, we'll fix it. Um, but the, as far as I know, the length of the diameter of the observable universe, the universe that we know exists, the length of that is 93 billion light years. So it takes light, the fastest thing that we know of in this world to, that moves, um, it would take light 93 billion years to get from one end of the universe that we even know exists all the way to the other end. Now, 93 billion is a massive number. I don't even know what that means. I don't really know what a billion means, probably. Um, but maybe the, to ma- maybe bring it down to our terms, if you were to get in your car 
and you go from one end of this 93 billion light year universe and you drive in your car, your spacey car at this point, um, all the way over here and you have no problem with oxygen. Don't worry about the, that for this metaphor. Um, so you go from one end to the other. How long do you think it would take for you to drive 93 billion light years? 10,000 billion years? What about 10,000 billion billion years? That's how long it would take for you to drive from one end of the universe to another. A billion, what is a billion? We don't even have a name for a billion billion. We have to call it a billion. We don't have a name for that number. It's huge. So you have a billion billion. Oh, no, no, 10,000 of those billion billions. That's how long it takes you to get from one end of the universe to the other in your car. And the crazy thing about that, as massive and as huge as that is, the Psalms say that the work of the universe was this for God the Father. It's the work of his fingers. That 10,000 billion billion was that. I think the Father probably loves the Son a little bit more than that. Just think how wide, how vast, how huge the Father's love for the Son must be. If 10,000 billion billions is this, it's more than 10,000 billion billions. It's this crazy, wild, abstract thing that I can't even get my head around. We can't fathom the depth of the Father's love. I mean, if you total up all the deep and significant loves that you have here on earth for your partner, for your children, for your friends and family and everything, it doesn't even begin to scrape the surface. It's not even the beginning itch. So the father loves the son, and the son is more than acceptable in his sight. I mean, this is, I mean that's putting it very mildly. He is a thrill to the father. Jesus is fully accepted in the Trinity's love. The pinnacle of this whole event that we find is the Father's delight in the Son. Well, maybe you're saying to yourself, well, that's really interesting, and 10,000 billion billions, yeah, whatever. God loves the Son, so what? Like, why, why does that matter? Yeah, they ought to love each other. Well, the reason this is a big deal is that we can be included in this Trinitarian love because the Son identifies with us. How does the Son identify with us? Well, in this story, it's through Jesus' baptism. This is a weird thing that Jesus came to John to be baptized. The first thing Jesus did in his public ministry is to identify with the human race and go into the waters of repentance with them. Now, that should take us off guard because Jesus does not need to repent for anything. He's perfect. Why, why is he getting baptized? There's no forgiveness he needs. Well, what he's doing is he's choosing to identify with those that he came to save by being baptized um, by one of his own creation. And Jesus actually gives the reason to John. John in, in chapter 14 says, I need to be baptized by you. Why, why do you want me to baptize you? And Jesus says, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. It's to fulfill all righteousness. How does Jesus' baptism fulfill all righteousness? That sounds like something he would say before the cross. Why is he saying this before baptism? What, what does that mean? And it's not even... Jesus isn't just saying this is a righteous thing for me to do. He's saying this fulfills all righteousness. What does that mean? Well, one aspect of Jesus, Jesus being baptized at the beginning of his ministry is this. It's an act of setting the wrong things right. That's what righteousness is, is setting things that are wrong right. And if Jesus is fulfilling that, then it's, it's something to do with that. What Jesus is doing here is by emptying himself, by taking the form of a servant, Christ is identifying with the human race. He is God, yes, and the Trinity affirmed that, but the baptism now affirms his humanity, affirms that he's a man. So the Trinity affirms his deity, his baptism affirms his humanity. He's one person with two natures. 
And so if righteousness, according to the Bible, is responding to what is not right and setting that right, what Christ is doing then in setting wrong things right, the first step for him is identifying with us. And what we find here, again, it goes back to Isaiah. What we find here is an answer to Isaiah's cry in the Old Testament for God's righteousness to be revealed. In Isaiah's time, just like ours, he saw a God who was perfect and the world, a world that was very broken and very imperfect. And in that discrepancy, in that, that, that dissonance, he cried out to God and he said this. He said, look down from heaven, God. Look at us. Look out the window of your holy and magnificent house. Whatever happened to your passion, your famous mighty acts, your heartfelt pity and your compassion? God, why are you holding back? Oh, that you would rip open the heavens and descend and make the mountains shudder at your presence. And Christ, now coming down out of heaven, now up out of the water, is the answer to this prayer that Isaiah prayed all those many years ago. God is setting wrong things right, specifically us. And all righteousness is being fulfilled. I mean, how many of us want brokenness in this world to not be broken anymore? We all want things to be made right. But all this hinges on something different than baptism, different than, and it's actually something that we don't have in this story. We have to fast forward to the end of Jesus' public ministry because the fulcrum of Christ's identification with us doesn't, it doesn't just rest on baptism in itself. It's the story of the cross, it's where the son took our wrongdoing upon himself and he died for them. He didn't just identify with us, but he took on our wrong stuff and died for it. And without that act, God is not delighted with us. The Bible says without the cross, God is full of wrath. He's full of wrath because instead of obeying him, we've decided to do things on our own terms over and over and over and over. And we've rejected him. And everything wrong that we have done has to be dealt with. Now, maybe some of you might be wondering, as I do, you know, why would God be angry with me? I haven't really killed anybody recently. Um, you know, I don't try and stone Christians that often. Why is he angry with me? I'm relatively good. Well, the Bible says, regardless of the things that we do on the outside, if we aren't worshiping God on the inside, that's like committing treason. It's like a spy that can look perfectly good on the outside, but once you take a look at the inside, you see the levels of betrayal. And no country treats treason with neutrality, and they ought not to. God doesn't either. And so our cosmic treason has to be dealt with because God is just. God is something who we want him to be. He's just. We all want a just God. We all want good judges, people who deal out punishments in accordance with their wrongdoing. If there was a judge that never punished anybody, we'd think, well, get that guy out of there. He's not doing his job. But the problem for us is that we bring ourselves under that microscope. We put ourselves under that perfect judgment. We bring our own wrongdoings to that trial. We find we are treasonous. We rightly deserve God's wrath. And we can't deal with this by ourselves. But there's good news in that we don't need to deal with this by ourselves. God himself took it upon Jesus. God had a wrath. God the Father had a wrath that only God the Son could satisfy. And that's the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus willingly and lovingly took on what we deserved upon himself. And so for now, for those who are in Christ, God moves from what was wrath, not to neutrality or just kind of being okay with, but to delight, to, to being thrilled, to excitement, to joy, that we can be the Father's joy. 
And baptism is the beginning of Jesus' identification with us. The cross is its culmination. Maybe a way to think about it is if you had a, a funnel. So if you have a funnel um, at the top, uh, everything that goes in that funnel will go into whatever kind of vessel that you're putting it into. So yeah, you have a funnel like this. There we go. And so at the top there, that is the, the, that's, that's the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. This is that more than 10,000 billion billions love that's going on. And at the bottom is us. And that little spot in the middle, that's the cross. So everything that goes through in the top, all that 10,000 billion billions, you pour water on the top, all that water is going to come through the bottom as it goes through the filter through that cross. And so this is actually kind of amazing when you think about it. The love that we have that comes from God is the same kind of love that the Trinity has within each other. The same kind of love the Father has for the Son. It's the same kind of love the Father has for us if we're in Christ. The same kind of joy that the Father has for the Son is the same kind of joy that the Father has for us if we're in Christ. The same kind of excitement that they have, we get to be, we get to be a part of that as it passes through that little point. And that little point means for all those who are in Christ. And just to give a quick kind of smattering of the things that we get in Christ. These are some of the blessings that we get um, for those who are in Christ. We get every spiritual blessing before the world is even created. All those who are in Christ, all of that is at the top, filters all through the bottom. Every spiritual blessing, we get that because we're in Christ. In Christ, we get Jesus who empathizes with us because he was, in, he was tempted in every way that we have been tempted because we're in Christ. In Christ, we get he, he himself as our brother. Christ sing praises alongside us. When we sing this morning, as we were singing those songs, Christ himself is in the midst of our congregation singing praises alongside us. That's amazing for those who are in Christ. Christ is our friend. In Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. And in Christ, we have forgiveness for our wrongs. And in Christ, we get a future hope that moths cannot eat, that rust cannot destroy, that will always be secure for us, for all those who are in Christ. And all this is before we do anything, before we do a half-decent job or before we mess something up. If you're in Christ, even if you were a complete waste of space, lounging on your sofa, binge-watching Netflix, eating crisps all day long, if you're in Christ, God says, that's my boy. That's my girl. Of course, God's love is such that it changes us from being waste of space to something better, but it's not because of what we're doing that God loves us. For those whom Christ has died, those who are in him, those whom he was baptized for, no matter what, God loves you and is delighted in you. It's who you are. And even as I say this, parts of us are a little uncomfortable with it. I, I am. How can God love the person who's lounging on the couch as much as he loves me? I surely am more important than that guy. I don't think so. The good child parts of us are uncomfortable because of the fact that God delights in us outside of what we do. But we've done so much to be, to, to, to be looked upon. We, we've led life groups. We've served others. We've done these things. These are, these are things that we want people to see us doing so that we get that feeling of worth. And for us who are like that, our service fulfills all righteousness, not Christ. The good child balks that, at that inclusivity. The bad child parts of us, and we have these parts of us too, are uncomfortable because God says the only way you can really get the delight that you really want is the only way you can do that is through Christ. The bad child says, that's the only way. I can find my own way, thank you very much. It's kind of hard doing that Christ thing. I don't really want to do all that. Can't I just like live how I want, when I want? 
My partner fulfills all my righteousness. I'm good enough with that. So the, in, the, the good child balks at that inclusivity that everyone can come. The bad child balks at that exclusivity, saying oh, this is the only way to come. And we are made of both, and both deeply offend who we are. But the radical love of the Father, though, is a freeing love. Christ identifies with us. We are in him. The same love the Father has for the Son is the same kind of love he has for us. Everything at the top comes through the bottom. And this can't help but change us. Because the Father loves the Son, and the Son identifies with us, now we get to the good part. The Father delights in us. Now because of what Christ did, the Father looks at us in the same way he looks at the Son. His posture towards us is delight. He's thrilled. He says, that's my son. That's my daughter. That's my boy. That's my girl. He's actually thinking of you like that right now as you sit there in your seat for all those who know Jesus. The Father's delight leads to freedom. Freed to a living relationship. This leads to being free to be able to be generous. Something that we, everybody wants to be known as the generous person. It's good to be generous. It's fashionable to be generous right now. The Spirit who rested upon Jesus now empowers us to live out this generosity in a new way. So the good and bad child of us, those parts of us, they use things and other people as a way to, get to, to feel better about themselves. It, it, basically, we objectify everything in order for us to feel better about ourselves. Outwardly good things, outwardly bad things, relationships, whatever. It's all so that I will feel better about myself eventually at the end of the day. And if these things don't make us feel better, then we don't do them. We quit. Or if we do keep on doing them, then we either get bitter or self-righteous or probably both. But other than God himself, every other thing out there can never come through for you in the ways that you truly desire. When you see how deeply broken we are, perfectly good things can become bad things in our hands. But if you're in Christ, you're freed from this tyranny, and now we can do good things in response to God's goodness, not as a way to get it. We can have relationships that are giving and generous, not as a way that we can ultimately just get something out of it. It's an overflow of the love that we already have. If we get a part of that, 10,000 billion billions, and we know we don't just get a part, we get the whole thing. If we get even just a part of that, that gives us the generosity to be able to give that away over and over and over again. Just as the father didn't keep his love to himself, but showed it to the son, and just as the son didn't keep that kind of love to himself, but showed it to us, the love we receive isn't meant to end with us. We're called to something beyond mere consumption, beyond mere consumerism. Our love ought to be projected outward. And this leads to generosity in all areas of life. This, is, this kind of generosity allows us to have empathy towards those who don't believe the same things we do. Take, for example, the LGBT community. Do they know us for the love and the empathy that we have for them? Or do they know us for hatred or apathy or whatever other broken things that we have towards them? Spirit, would you give us empathy for others? And he will. What about generosity, so the generosity and empathy, what about generosity and how we view risks? Because we have been so overwhelmingly blessed, we can try things and be okay if they fail. Sometimes our fear of failure stops us from actually doing anything for the kingdom. But risk-taking, for us who are found in that kind of, that sea of love, risk-taking now must be redefined when we're found in that kind of love. Spirit, would you lead us into new areas for your glory? And speaking of failure, we can be generous. Our generosity changes how we ought to think of failure. Because if we fail, 
and we will, maybe I should say when we fail, we're not going to be completely crushed because we are always found in the love of the Father. It's not contingent on us. Spirit, would we find our security in you? So generosity is something that goes beyond what's easy. It's, it's, generosity reaches into what's hard to give and gives it freely without strings attached. And this doesn't necessitate some kind of outwardly radical departure. I mean, it might for you in your life, but it does necessitate in the strongest way possible an inwardly radical departure from a life of fear, from a life of unbelief, from a life of not understanding God's delight in you and who you are. It frees us from a life of manipulation and gives us a life of generosity. It's like when a child paints a picture for their parents. Now, my, my six-month-old is, is too young to get into the painting thing yet, and, but I have seen some of these paintings on refrigerators, and um, as wonderful as they are, no, I've not really seen a Picasso yet hanging on that refrigerator, but you, you don't delight in the painting because of the quality of the painting. You delight in the painting because you love your child. That's why that painting is worth so much. And that child hopefully isn't creating a painting to get love out of the parent. Hopefully that child is, is just doing it out of an overflow of the love that they receive from the parent. And we can work in that same way. Our, our works can, can be those kind of messy finger painting kind of things that the father is, is, is overjoyed about, putting on his whatever kind of refrigerator it looks like in heaven. I don't know. Probably American massive thing. <laughs> But the Spirit now, this is not something we have to work up ourselves to figure out how to do these things. The Spirit now that rested upon Jesus, resides in us, that empowers us to live in this new way, to live in this generous kind of way. For Christ, because his Father loves him, more than 10,000 billion billions, he was working in the joy of the Father's delight. This is the freedom that Christ lives in even now, always doing the Father's will. And for all those who are in Christ, for all those who are found in him and trust in him and lean on him, we have this same kind of love, as much above as below. If that's true, what can stop us from participating in the will of the Father? Nothing. I mean, what would that next step for you look like? I'm not talking about something radical like move to a new country. Only dumb people do that. Um, but um, <laughs> what would that look like, the next step for you? Just that, maybe that next small step. I mean, if you're not a Christian, maybe that means kind of risking the weirdness of studying the Bible with another Christian or the weirdness of going to a life group, or even if you're here this morning, maybe that's a really kind of weird and awkward for you. We really appreciate that you're here. But let me tell you, if what we're reading is as real as the Bible believes that it is, the only real risk you have is missing out. The only risk that you're, you, you're, you have to worry about is missing out on the love that God has for you. Now, if you're a believer, maybe that next small step means injecting a little bit more of gospel intentionality into social events. Uh, maybe it means going out of your way to include those that you wouldn't normally include, especially those who don't believe in Jesus. Maybe that means I'm bringing up kind of a gospel conversation that you know you're going to feel really strange and awkward about to a coworker. What does it mean for you to be generous in empathy, to be generous in your risks, to be generous in how we view failure? I mean, ask the Spirit what, what he might be doing in you. But to all of us who have the good and the bad child battling out within us, to all parts of who we are, Christ says, come to me. All you who are working with religion to prove your goodness, oh, how tired you must be. Come to Jesus. 
All you who serve in God's church, ironically, that you might be seen as worthy of the Father, stop that mess. Come to Jesus. All of you who are worn out, trying to find elsewhere the delight that the Father has for you already in Christ, come to him. Get to experience that love. It's only through a living relationship with Christ that we get the Father's love, that we get the Spirit to rest within us, that we get that delight. And in him, we get the joy, the delight, the love that we all crave, overflowing, that more than 10,000 billion billions love constantly upon you, saying, that's my boy, that's my girl. That's what we get in Christ. Let's pray to that God. Father, as we come to you with our broken, childish ways, we thank you you have made yourself known to us through Christ. We thank you that you don't live separate away from us, but you are intimately close. We ask, Lord, that you would break us of those ways that we try and steal delight for ourselves, steal love for ourselves in ways that just will never satisfy. And Father, we ask that we might, be, we might know more readily the reality of your love for us. Lord, if we don't know you, um, would you become more real to us? Would we understand just a little bit more what it means to be found in Christ? Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, we ask that we might live it out more obediently, not as a way to get the Father's delight, but because we're so happy to be found in the Father's delight that we work. We can't help but work. Father, you are so good to us. You're the good Father that um, maybe none of us had. We pray to you as children lost in our own ways, but thankfully you have delivered your light to us in unimaginable ways. We thank you and we pray to you in the name of Christ himself. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.